Jenna. And I'm Sam. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. All right, welcome back to another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Today we have a fun episode. I, I should say, I don't want to say a dark episode. It's, it's, it's not dark. It's dark in the sense of the subjects that we're talking about, like physically dark at night. Because we're going to be talking about bird migration. And here today we have Molly O'Neill with us, who is the Director of Community Partnerships and Conservation. Welcome, Molly. Hi, Sam. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Yes, we are so excited. This is a really cool episode because the entire thing is based more around what we can do to help birds throughout the migration and just a lot of different ways. But um, we'll be talking with Molly, but less about um, her job here at the Cincinnati Zoo and more about what she's doing and how we can all be a part of what she's doing to help uh, save birds while they're migrating this spring and uh, upcoming fall. Yeah, it's super timely. I love that we're talking about this right now because we are in the midst of spring migration um, for a lot of our North American native songbirds, which is sort of an interesting way of stating native because although they, they live here for part of the year, so they're considered native, um, many of them are not part of the United States during the winter time. They have wintering grounds in Central and South America. So, um, so it's another piece of this effort that I think is really cool is that it really highlights that conservation and, and uh, conservation impact is kind of a, a big system thing and you know it's not just all local. So, so yes, we're focused on what we can do locally, but it is a neat story because it does link together um, conservation partners all over the place. Yes, definitely. I think it's kind of crazy to think that birds migrate as far as they do and as often as they do, and that's got to be a lot of work on them. Yeah. Um, but so something that happens while they're migrating is, unfortunately, we have light pollution in a lot of large cities, including Cincinnati. Um, and so tell us a little bit about the lights out Cincinnati and lights out in general and what sure. we can do or just give us fill us in a little bit. Yeah, so um, so a lot of people, including myself, don't realize or didn't realize that um, many of our songbird species actually migrate at nights, um, and they use um, stars and lunar fields for navigation, so kind of like sailors back in the day. Um, that is how they find their way on these like really incredible epic journeys. Um, some of them thousands and thousands of miles, which is amazing to think that our tiny little feathered friends are <laughs> taking these great journeys with like no luggage, no plane <laughs> tickets, no like guaranteed food or water. Like it's just this sort of amazing, somewhat risky um, journey. And um, so, the light pollution that we see in a lot of urban centers and then just across for us, of course, the United States, um, that can kind of mess with their ability to both navigate, to find their way to their summering breeding grounds, sometimes in our own backyards where they're raising their families. Sometimes they pass through Ohio and continue heading north um, all the way up to Canada. Some of them have like these really amazing thousands of miles of, of uh, journey. and. Um, and so anything we can do to sort of decrease what we all know now as light pollution helps with um, both bird journeys and all kinds of other animals and, and creatures who 
um, prefer the darkness. I mean, I don't know. I, I know I've been told many times, don't look at your phone at night because that light will mess with your like circadian clock. Well, it's the exact same thing for most animals. So any sort of artificial light after what would normally be sundown can mess with systems. Right. Um, so it is, um, it is a kind of a crazy thing to put together that migrating birds and our buildings, lights have a connection, but they definitely do. Now, did this program, did it start in Cincinnati, or is Lights Out all over? So, it did not start in Cincinnati. Um, there's about 45 major cities in the States and then Toronto who have Lights Out programs. Um, most started in the 90s when people were seeing a lot of bird deaths um, occur on these very tall, brightly lit buildings. Um, going to work downtown in the mornings and during spring and fall and kind of seeing lots of brightly feathered, colorful friends on the sidewalks was really upsetting and um, highlighted an issue that um, bright lights, tall buildings, and migration um, don't go well together. So, um, so in the 90s there were some pretty big efforts by some local municipalities, one starting in Toronto. Chicago is another city that was an early adopter of a Lights Out program. Um, but now it's about 45 cities across the states. Um, Ohio has several programs. Um, Cleveland has a really big one. They, um, they have probably one of the biggest issues with bird strikes because they're right on the lake and so birds getting ready to head across the lake, um, kind of get drawn into that urban core, um, which makes it tough for Cleveland, but they've got a really solid program up there, helping with both monitoring to have um, birds who are injured, um, hopefully rescued and rehabbed and then released, and then um, also just recovery of the dead birds, which even that is helpful because you can really get a lot of data from um, the bird carcasses that are recovered, including things like where are their wintering grounds, you can do some DNA studies. Um, so the collection of either the, the dead or injured birds is still an important part of um, understanding the lights out efforts. Um, and also identifying which buildings are sort of um, the most problematic and hopefully working with those building owners to be able to suggest mitigation efforts so that they um, they can maybe minimize the impact of their buildings, including turning lights out. That's, of course, the biggest, easiest one, and energy savings. Um, and it's kind of a cool public engagement moment, too. Right. Like, um, all of a sudden, if a few nights a year, all of the downtown buildings kind of dim their lights uh, overnight, it's kind of like, I wonder what's happening. And then people get intrigued and curious, and then you can make a big announcement. Like, well, we've got millions of birds that are going to fly overhead tonight. So um, buildings are, are doing their, their part to try to save birds, which is um, nice for you know, sort of the PR side of things, too. You brought up a good point. It is energy saving, mm -hmm. and it's honestly only, it's probably good all year round, but it's really necessary during, like, the migration times. Yep. So have you found much pushback, or do you know if the people working um, with the owners of these tall buildings, ha like, when you suggest it, I feel like it'd be a really easy sell, and you could say, you can save energy and you can save birds. Have you have you found much pushback? Are the are the owners willing to help most of the time? So um, we're a relatively new program. Um, 
And just a little bit of background, so we launched Lights Out Cincinnati in 2018, which was the 100-year anniversary of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, which was one of the earliest environmental laws put into place, and it was a response to several years of people um, kind of beginning to understand ah, human impact on the environment is actually really big. So here in Cincinnati, the best example is um, Martha the passenger pigeon. Um, yeah. the, the extinction of a bird that had previously been incredibly prolific, you know, flocks in the billions that were hunted to extinction, um, she died here in Cincinnati in 2014, I'm sorry, 1914. <laughs> um, so there were several years of like, huh, all right, we need to start thinking about how our actions are impacting the living creatures we share the planet with. So um, there were a few other things happening around that time. Um, and bird populations across the board were declining. The snowy egret was hunted nearly to extinction because of feathers. Um, the desire for feathers, mainly for ladies' fancy hats. Wow. Um, so, you know, and that it's, it's, people didn't know. Right. It, and, and so as soon as they really did see, like, oh my gosh, these amazing birds are disappearing, um, and it is something that is within our control, um, that's when some of the discussions started happening around what can we do to protect these animals. So, um, in 1918, um, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was enacted and, um, and basically protected all migratory birds, um, and then over time their nests, their feathers, their eggs, anything that had to do with them. And that was huge. So, for the hundred years since then, um, all the protections have been in place, and that's wonderful. Other things have occurred over the last hundred years that have still made it sort of a struggle for birds to survive, including lights and tall buildings and um, and loss of habitat being one. Um, outdoor cats, cats that are allowed to roam outdoors, can be a big problem for our, our songbirds. So um, so across the board, there were lots of things that were happening um, that people realized we really need to help out. So it seemed like a good time for Cincinnati to launch. Hey, it's 100 years that we've been working to protect birds. Here's one really easy thing people can do. Um, turn your lights out and during spring and fall migration. The issue with the tall buildings, um, it takes a minute for people to kind of get over the psychology of brightly lit urban centers. Um, so we're kind of working towards that now is just starting to um, understand what the barriers are for that. Some of it is as simple as a lot of those sort of architectural lighting things are programmed and on timers and so you have to work with like the right people to reprogram the lights for downtown on certain days. So some of it's just like, oh, I never even thought about the fact that like somebody has this massive computer system that like flips lights on at certain times, like how do you reprogram that? Um, there's also interesting things with like people, business owners want big visibility, so a brightly lit building with a really, you know, lovely sign, it seems counterintuitive to say, no, we should turn that off, um, unless they also maybe have the tools in place to help pub the public understand why they're turning it off, which again, once you know, like, oh, that's really cool. This building right. has opted to like help save birds by dimming their lights. So hopefully more and more people will learn that and hear that and we'll work um, 
with building owners to talk about uh, when that can be done. And um, so yeah, there's just some challenges. But again, being a somewhat new program, we're just starting to, and then of course COVID kind of stopped most of those those types of meetings and conversations. But um, yeah, we're hoping to kind of get back into that this spring and um, and this fall. Fall is another really important migration time, especially for the eastern side of the country, um, which we're on a major migratory pathway. And um, our fall numbers are pretty massive too. So, um, so we'll work this spring to try to get more buildings to consider dimming their lights. Um, and especially that like upper lighting, right. the, the lighting that goes down to the street, although that contributes to the ambient lighting that might impact the ability to like see stars at night. Um, the upward facing lighting is probably the bigger issue for birds. Um, they're attracted to bright light. And so sometimes they come into an urban core just because it's there and then either get lost in the light and exhausted and drop or, um, or they are able to safely land in the downtown core and wake up in the morning, and then they're surrounded by all this glass, which is probably the other biggest problem, is glass is very reflective, and birds don't have the ability to distinguish between a reflection of a tree and an actual tree, so they'll fly right into what they think is a That's safe tough. place. And then, yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners have probably heard that really sort of sad thud of what was that and it's a bird hitting their glass um, and often that is because it's either reflective or so clear particularly if lights are on at night you know how you can see right into a building with the light on um, as they think it's a safe place to land so um, yeah yeah it is it's interesting because there are a few different things you could do to help and you mentioned all of them but basically a building maybe they don't want to turn off their lights but they can get blinds or put, make sure their blinds are down and it's most important midnight to 5 a.m. is from earth to dawn you got it is what I read so yep. I mean who's out who needs advertising from midnight to 5 if you think about it I hope people would consider at least closing their blinds reducing yep. the amount of light in their upper floors of these tall downtown buildings yeah um, and then there's also a special um, things to reduce the reflectiveness of glass so yep. maybe that's something they could look into if they do want to keep the lights on um, which kind of brings up a good point, something that we've been doing here at the zoo mm -hmm. is trying to reduce our bird mortality because another thing that goes into it and just as time goes on, the habitats here at the zoo are, are a better experience for guests because we have glass in front of almost all of our newer habitats so the animals can come right up close, like you just have a few inches between you and the animals. But then it caused issues for our wild animal friends that are living around here. Yep. And we have had some bird strikes around, and, and particularly in Africa. And the, the department I work in, because it is the newest area, we find them often. And so we've been doing things to reduce the amount of bird strikes around here. And we have volunteers that have helped us in the mornings. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure. guessing you've been a a leader in all of that if you want to talk about what we've been doing here at the zoo specifically yeah totally and um you're absolutely right like our we the zoo if you ever like google earth or like look at a satellite image of cincinnati especially because we're on a hill um we are this lovely green oasis sitting yes. on top of a hill um so for migratory birds um and birds in general and like you said all kinds of wildlife um it is definitely like oh i i, I could see kind of heading in there for a little while, especially if you're on this great, like, epic journey as a migrant. Um, 
And so you're right, they're drawn to the zoo, they land here, they wake up and they see, you know, these either nothing, like for instance, we're talking about Africa, we've got the really amazing giant glass plates um, to allow for these really um, beautiful connections with our the animals in our care. Um, but you're right, that is a big problem for our birds who can't see that. So um, around the same time that we launched Lights Out Cincinnati, we did start an on-site bird strike monitoring program with volunteers who would come in in the mornings. Um, and as birds are waking up right around sunrise, um, they would walk kind of a route through the zoo and try to figure out um, which of our glass, um, either the habitat glass or just the windows on our buildings, which one seems to be um, the biggest problems for birds. And um, so they would either find um, stunned or injured birds um, and then work with our bird department to get them to a permitted rehabber, which is another um, thing we can talk about at some point. Um, or um, if they were dead birds, we, um, we collect those and we share those with um, one of the ornithologists at Miami University um, for bird studies. But um, that data that we collected in that first year allowed us to identify which of the habitats in the zoo were kind of the biggest problems for birds. Um, and it started out with Malayan tiger. That plate, big plate glass was one of the biggest problems because again, if you've ever been to the zoo and you've been in that habitat, it's covered in, like there's green behind, there's green in front, so it's very difficult for birds to see and distinguish, like I can't just fly right through that yeah. glass. So um, we did install um, a product called Feather Friendly Glass Stickers, and they're the little sort of dot matrix. They're very small, it's about two inches apart, um, but it's a large sort of sticker that ends up putting these little dots on the glass. and. The cool thing is, as soon as those were installed, bird strikes dropped by 80%. Actually, wow. no, I'm sorry, not on that one. That was 100%. We had, in the first year, zero birds wow. ended up hitting the glass. So it was a very effective way to stop um, those bird strikes in that area. Since then, um, with the help of our volunteer bird strike monitors, um, other areas that were sort of the biggest problems were identified, including lion. So we did install the stickers um, on a part of part of the glass at um, Lions and a few other areas, and that has decreased across the zoo bird strikes by eighty to ninety percent. So it's really Easy really fix. effective. Totally, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm sure some guests are frustrated when they see all these dots, and it kind of ruins an awesome picture moment. It just makes them better photographers. <laughs> it really does. They just have to work with challenge. it. Yeah, they, yeah. But it's for such a good reason and yeah. makes such a, a big difference in such an easy way for us here, which of course, all of us coming to the zoo and working at the zoo, all we want is, is to protect wildlife and, you know, bring people close enough to care yeah and so here's the reason we hope you all know why if you didn't already the reason we put these dots on the windows yeah and I think I think that's the key piece right there is like just as soon as people understand I, I remember thinking ooh, when we put them up at Malay and Tiger like there might be some frustrated visitors like why is this here so there's a sign there um, that says and I think the minute people read like it's like walking the walk, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're yes. a conservation organization, so we it it's proof that like we are we are working hard to protect all wildlife, including the wildlife that um, opts to come to the zoo. Um, so yeah, it's I think I think I have a lot of 
faith in, in the human ability to care about other living things. And I've seen a lot of that, especially since the signs went up. Um, so the moment of quick frustration about a, a photograph may be a little different because of these glass dots. It's also a great way for people to tell the story of like, well, the glass dots yeah. are in there because the zoo cares about birds and um, and and the fact that it works so well. So and it doesn't just have to be glass dots. I mean, that's something that you know we have um, an extraordinary amount of large plate glass. Um, but even homeowners and um, building owners, I know a lot of families have like big vaulted windows and stuff. Um, might not be easy to to get the dots installed but fun things you can do with your kids for a few weeks through like migration season is like get out your tempera paints and like yeah. paint like welcome migratory oh my friends <laughs> i love that idea over the windows for a few weeks right exactly like, it doesn't have to be all year round so anything you can do to sort of break up that reflectivity is that a word yeah. Reflectivity um, is going to help birds. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun, right? I mean, you maybe don't want to put your littles on ladders and right. doing like your high up windows, but um, a lot of newer homes have windows that you can like, you know, pull inside to clean. Just like, I don't know, write fun messages with temper paint or even soap. Soap works. Anything to just sort of like help um, birds those, understand that it's not it's not an actual tree that they're seeing it's just a reflection those little like gel stickers yeah. are spawn and then at meerkat even we just bought a really cheap um, package of the leaf yeah. I mean they're clear leaves you yeah. can hardly even see the stickers on there and I think they've made a big difference it's funny a side note um, we mentioned that all these wild animals from living around Cincinnati come to the zoo because we provide them with so much free food. So yeah, right. when I'm sitting with the meerkats and throwing out mealworms, the little birds will come and oh, yeah. steal the mealworms before the meerkats can get them. Sometimes they'll pick up four at a time and just hold them in their beak and go feed their babies. They build nests in there, which isn't smart. But And then the robins come and steal meatballs when we do scatter feeds for our painted dogs or our lions. I'm always worried there isn't going to be any meat by the time we let the, the predators out because <laughs> they come, they're like, oh, free meatball. I'll take that. Well, and I'll for sure that. in the spring, if it's like, you know, breeding parents, the, yes. the you know, they don't, baby birds don't eat seed. They right. eat insects. Like that's, you know, their caterpillars are for sure like the biggest need for mom and dad birds to find because that's what they're feeding their babies on you know seed isn't really a food source until they're adults or you know grown up yeah. so baby birds need lots of um of insect food so it doesn't surprise me at all that they're like oh mealworms that looks good and i got four babies back in the nest right? who are like mouths open and super hungry so it's just amazing they figured it out they watch oh, yeah. and they notice like mm -hmm. it's just like the meerkats see me coming with the food they the birds come to <laughs> yeah which is all attention. the more reason why i'm glad to to like continue to look at all of the the glass areas where we can right. um break some of that reflectivity so that we we are feeding them and then also sending them on their safe way so there is a cardinal named chippy that's inserted itself into the bird <laughs> encounter and in the children's zoo show it knows exactly what time the encounters start and every time mealworms are thrown out wow, it takes the hilarious. stage it is hilarious. I love that. Now, I, I know that Lights Out is, is focused year-round, but it also sounds like there's some key dates that 
happen throughout the year that we should be aware of. Could you elaborate sure. a little bit more of when these migrations happen? Yeah, definitely. So um, so for anybody who is interested in learning more, um, we do have a website, lightsoutcincinnati.org. Um, but there's also one of my go-tos for information is um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. They have an amazing website that's chock full of information. Um, including a team of folks who developed um, BirdCast, which is a website that um, you can get real-time migration information and mapping. It's so cool. So um, they use uh, satellite data and years of weather data and, um, and um, basically can predict 24 to 72 hours ahead of time when we're going to have super heavy nights of migration. That's amazing. It is amazing. And I reached out to um, one of the scientists there um, when we first launched Lights Out Cincinnati to ask if there was a way to get some more like localized data on um, when we could expect in the Cincinnati and Ohio area to have the most of our migratory friends flying through at night. Um, and it was amazing. They were really responsive and um, and came back with that essentially what they're looking at, although migration season is many, many weeks, it's usually like as early as mid-February for some of our waterfowl, um, to the end of May, um, there actually are about seven or eight nights between, um, so far the data is you know, sort of always changing, but right now between April 24th and May 10th. So folks were like right on the cusp of yeah. some of these nights where I mean, we're talking upwards of like 15, 20 million birds flying over our houses at night. Sometimes oh, you can yeah. hear them. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm trying to fathom that number right? in my mind. <laughs> yeah, in one <laughs> night and yeah. usually within a period of time. So like as you were saying earlier, yes, it's like 11 p.m. or midnight through 5 a.m., but the heaviest time is about three hours after sunset. Okay. So um, so that's the time when you maybe want to go outside. Um, check BirdCast, number one. Look and see if it's a heavy night. Um, it's a really cool website. It and sounds it's like, like it's almost like a radar. Like it is. If you're like, is the rain coming? Yes, yeah. it's totally. Like, are the birds coming? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm a total bird nerd and nature dork, so I have it bookmarked. <laughs> so I check it, like, every day for, like, ooh, is this going to be a heavy night or what? That's awesome. Um, and what I didn't realize, the way the website is um, set up, it's sort of on a color scale, so, like, Look, very much looks like weather, um, but the color scale, it says like low to high, um, but I don't think, and I'll have to check it, I don't think it says like when you're talking low numbers and high numbers what that means, and so it was when I reached out to um, the team at BirdCast that I um, <laughs> realized when they said high migration, they're talking about, like I said, upwards of 15 million birds is high, so even a low night could be you know, a few million, which is still a lot of birds coming through. So, um, so basically starting kind of now, I would say, um, through mid-May, um, keep your eyes on BirdCast, um, and like when those high nights are being predicted and on those nights, um, just like mark your calendar to 
hey, this is a great night to turn my lights down or turn my lights off. Yeah, the front porch light doesn't yeah, need to be on those right. lights or whatever. And it's good for all of the wildlife around right now. Um, but specifically, yes, any of the anything you can do to decrease that ambient light. Um, there's some really neat images that show kind of the difference between cities when they've had like a massive power outage, where like just the ambient kind of glow of a city, even if you're not in the downtown urban core, just neighborhoods. Um, it's just, you, you've probably noticed it. There's a glow. If you've been out in the country and you, oh my gosh, look at all yes. those stars, didn't know those were there, and you drive back into the city and there's the ambient glow. That's the kind of stuff that really can throw birds off course um, because they don't see the stars as well. So, um, so anything you can do to decrease that ambient glow. And then particularly, it does have some stuff to do with weather. Like low cloud cover makes the glow brighter. So on those cloudy nights, really turn your lights down. But yeah, your porch light, you know, it's, it's, it, that kind of goes back to that human perception of like light equals safety. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are a little more um, concerned about security lights. So it's not that you have to necessarily keep them off, but make sure they're facing down. Um, there are certain wavelengths of light that are better. Okay. Um, so birds are more attracted to like um, white and red lights. So um, you can like change the, yeah. the color and um, yeah. So any unnecessary light during those eight, seven, eight nights and then all through migration season, it's just helpful to yeah. kind of decrease light pollution. So not to get super negative, but we did want to give out one kind of an estimated number of how many birds die because of this migration and light pollution and it's roughly about half a billion birds die each year in North America alone from building collisions. So if we can make an easy switch, <laughs> no pun intended, turn the <laughs> lights off, or if you work in a tall building, maybe you know the right person to talk to yep. um, and just throw that idea out there. You could lead it in your company that you uh, work with or work at and um, we were chatting a little bit before this that actually since downtown Cincinnati doesn't have as big of an issue as some cities that we might might have um, you know kind of been sizable comparison to yeah. um, but we're thinking maybe closer up here in uptown near the near the zoo on a hill because we are on a hill yeah we might be having more collisions so you guys are going to start working at looking more up here in this area? Yeah, there's, um, UC actually has a, um, a great group of um, young folks who are interested in birds. They have an ornithology club, which is cool. Awesome. And so we're starting to work with them on um, collaborating on monitoring projects and monitoring routes to see um, maybe which campus buildings are the um, a bigger issue. And again, we did, we did monitoring um, in the downtown area, and as you were saying, we didn't see nearly the number of, of bird deaths and um, bird strikes as some of the other major cities, and we're not entirely sure why. It, like you said, it could be that the downtown area is in the valley, um, but um, that's another <laughs> sort of reason why both uptown and then just general neighborhoods um, are important. Like, you know, who works in downtown buildings? Humans who live in places outside of downtown yes. so so you can kind of like if you spread the information far and wide to get people to turn lights out um that can be even better because it isn't just localized it is kind of everywhere i know i luckily i have um i'm in a house 
that has screens on the outside of the windows. Screens are actually a really good way too because um, it will decrease that thud a bit. It's not yeah. quite as hard of an impact for often it's not like a broken neck or something. It's internal injuries that will cause birds to um, die after a bird strike. Um, but so things like homes that um, that are often the, the, the people noticing those thuds are the ones who are living at home. It's harder sort of to be in a down, tall downtown building and even recognize that it's a problem, especially if it's happening at night. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I'm not sure I answered your question. No, yeah. I okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can kind of, I can go off on little tangents <laughs> if you haven't noticed. So can we. <laughs> Uh, Sam, do you have something special for us? I always episode? have. I need a title for this segment. Yes, I, we need a It's always like Jenna versus the world. I always pick <laughs> Jenna against the guests that we have, and I make up a little quiz that I thoroughly and depthly investigate before I make my questions. Oh, on. no. So, now I'm a little scared. Yeah. All right. Be careful, because this is Wikipedia coming at you. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, so, so basically what I'd like to do is have a little quiz and this quiz is you're gonna have to tell I'm gonna tell you two different birds okay. and give you their best each of these birds has something about them that makes them unique with their eyesight. So oh I'm gonna give goodness. you the category. So the first one is who can who has the um, best vision for distance oh. as far as birds go. So I'll give you two birds and then you have to say which bird you think it is. Okay. Okay? So this is again, I like to preface this with this is probably not accurate. <laughs> that this this is based off a conglomeration of Wikipedia, BuzzFeed, and internet searches from websites that don't have a bibliography. So, <laughs> and I have to I have to say, as I am a bird enthusiast, okay. not an expert. That's perfect. <laughs> I'm sure you are compared to that. Okay, so which of out of these two birds has the best eyesight as far as distance goes? The sea eagle or the bald eagle? Hmm. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm thinking of like their habitat and where you would need. I'm gonna go with bald eagle. Okay. Yeah. I think I think it's yeah. They're. I'm gonna go with bald eagle. All right, Jenna. I know nothing about the sea eagle, so I'm going to say bald eagle. You're awesome. both right. <laughs> bald eagle, nearly a seven to eight times sharper vision than humans do. And talk about a comeback story as far as birds go. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely. A, yeah. That, that's a whole other episode right Definitely. there yep. <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, human right. champions. Yeah. Okay, which of um, these two birds has the best color vision? The Harris hawk or the red tail hawk? Color vision. Mm-hmm. All right, what I'm going to like habitat again and prey species. I was going to say, what do Harris hawks eat? Yeah, um, I'm going to go with. Man, color. Okay. I'm going to go with red tail on this one. Okay. I'm going to go with Harris hawk. Okay. All right. The answer is. Harris Hawk. Woo! Pure nice. guess. Pure guess again. Do you have an info behind <laughs> that? Uh, apparently, they can see four. They have four. They can see four different colors. So they would okay. be able to see like a gray mouse on a okay. green pasture. Okay. So they're really good at picking up not just distance, but yeah. but color wise too. Cool. All right. Next is who? Which bird has the best night vision? Is it the eagle owl or the tawny owl? Eagle owl. Eagle owl. It's the tawny owl. No way. Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> he just got big eyes. Again, probably not accurate. 
All right. Now, out of these two, which bird can detect magnetic fields? Ooh. A European robin or a cardinal? Hmm. I'm gonna go with cardinal. Okay. That was my initial thought too, to be honest, but oh. I don't know why. It is actually the European robin. Okay. Jenna, so, we're failing here. Yeah. yeah. They actually have this special Shoot. segment in their brain that helps them detect magnetic fields. It's kind of crazy. And it helps with migration, especially yeah, say, at uh, night with two. Do they yeah. migrate more? Is that Or why? greater distances? Or I don't know. I don't know anything about European migrants. Yeah. 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 I'd be able to tell you, but I didn't do in-depth research. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the last one, which bird has the best panoramic view? Um, bird species. The American woodcock or the western Japanshine? American woodcock. American woodcock? I've never even heard of the other one. Woodcocks are pretty I'm just, cool. I know the woodcocks have those amazing, like their eyeballs are really big and they're kind of more on the tops of their heads. Okay. Um, they're, yeah. Okay, yeah. so woodcock for both of them? Yeah. You're right. Yay! <laughs> I made up the other one. I don't even. That's not even a real bird. <laughs> but it should be. Maybe I'll discover it someday. Like, oh, I know. The Western Jumping Shine. Woodcocks, yeah. woodcocks are um, actually one of the earliest migrants that we see come through here. And um, and on a not so pleasant note, they are one of the birds that we find the most in bird strikes. So woodcocks, oven birds, some of the warblers. Um, so yeah, and they're actually sort of large birds. They, they have, um, they're, they're a game bird. They're, they do nest here. Um, they have an amazing sort of very special like mating ritual yes. where the males do this incredible like flight up and yeah, it's um, people, um, people go woodcocking in the um, spring when they're here. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so it like, kind of coincides with uh, what we call salamandering for yep, any yep, other yep. birds out yeah. there when we go out and look for the salamander migration, which yep. I guess we need to do an episode on that sometime. Yep. Totally. But yeah, the woodcocks are usually out like mid-February-ish yep. and they make this cool call and yeah, like they do almost like a spin in the air. It's wild. You don't know where they're going to land, yeah. but they're kind of so focused on mating. You can get like a really close-up view. and It's and very impressive to yes. the ladies. Is this yeah. the one that this takes off and lands in the same place? Yes. Ah, right. okay. Like, I've heard about this. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but their eyes, like, everybody who's listening, look up Woodcock. And look up the Woodcock Walk, which is hilarious. The new dance moves. It is the, the new dance moves, yeah. So <laughs> when, you, when you go Woodcocking with groups of fellow bird nerds, which happens fairly often in my life, <laughs> um, yeah, there's a time when the Woodcock Walk just starts up and you know it's yeah look it up people <laughs> to give their <laughs> perspective 350 degrees horizontally apparently that's oh my gosh it, yeah, and 180 degrees vertically so yeah wow well yeah. they are ground dwellers so they better be like Able looking yeah. out yeah. for yeah. predators so yeah it helps but man so do you have anything else you'd like to share with us about lights out or yeah bird strikes or anything before we kind of wrap up um i would say if you if you're interested in just sort of helping our little feathered migratory friends, or just our feathered friends in our backyards who don't migrate, because there's a lot of birds who are here year-round. Um, one of the best things you can do is create like bird-friendly, wildlife-friendly habitat in your yard, if you happen to have a yard, um, so that we have 
places for them to nest and places for them to feed and rest. Um, so creating habitat, which um, we have some pretty cool initiatives at the Cincinnati Zoo, including the Plant for Pollinators Challenge. Um, although that has pollinators in the name, all local wildlife benefits from the challenge and getting more plants in your yard. Um, so creating habitat if you're in a place to be able to do that, and then um, feeding the birds. Uh, with habitat loss, there's just a little bit less food available for birds when they're coming through our cities. Um, and then, yeah, the big simple one, just turn your lights out and try to do anything you can to um, cut down that reflectivity, which I hope is a word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there's so many what can I do's, and I think it's one of the... I don't know, one of the easiest ones that we... Turn your lights off! Yeah, yeah flip a switch! That's all you have to do! <laughs> flip them off, people! <laughs> well, thank you so much, Molly. We are so happy that you're able to join us and teach everyone about this, which I'm guessing it's it seems easy, but I don't know if everyone knew about it. And definitely about the number of birds that have been, are flying over during, you know, migration season. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you yeah, for having me. This always. was fun. Always good to hang out with you two crazy kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Sam. And I'm Jenna. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>